we have a, a lot of work to do to make sure that uh, animal source foods are produced in a way that is uh, sustainable, uh, that's uh, ethical, and uh, that has the, uh, as minimum impact to the environment as, uh, as possible. So I think um, most people in, in the animal industry, they, they want to see this. They, they want to make sure that uh, customers are, are informed and and uh, inefficiencies have been removed, and, and we are going towards the, the goal of uh, having a, a fully sustainable uh, animal systems. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo, Protecta, DSM, and JVI. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Ermias Kibrab. Dr. Kibrab is the Associate Dean for Global Engagement at the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at University of California, Davis, and holds the Cessna Endowed Chair in Sustainable Agriculture. He conducts research in animal nutrition, mathematical modeling of biological systems, and the impact of livestock on the environment. He co-chaired the Feed Additive and Methane Committees of the Food and Agricultural Organization at the UN and has authored over 250 peer-reviewed articles, as well as receiving several awards, including Excellence in Ruminant Nutrition and International Agriculture from the American Society of Animal Science and the 2022 Chancellor's Innovator of the Year Award. Additionally, he served on two committees of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine on methane and the nutrition of dairy cattle. He is regularly an invited speaker, including a TED Talk, which I can highly recommend to our audience. And his research was in the top 10 of all research conducted at the University of California system in 2021. We are honored to welcome Dr. Ermias Kabrab to the Poultry Podcast Show. Dr. Kabrab, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Before we get started, could you tell our audience a little bit about uh, your background and especially some highlights from your research background? I know you've primarily focused on ruminant nutrition and dairy cattle, but that's still... Um, very interesting to our audience, and we'll give some good background for them. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I um, started really um, studying about biology, and then uh, sort of moved on into uh, agriculture, and primarily really interested in two things. One is the um, increasing the productivity of livestock, whether it is ruminant systems or non-ruminant systems, and also uh, reducing the environmental impact of. Uh, livestock as well. So those are really the two things that I have been working on and uh, I've been working on in, in, in different areas um, and focusing on mathematical modeling basically helps me to understand the system and uh, trying to um, gain a little bit of insight of what the system is like and and, and when we do experiments, then we, it helps us to focus on what kind of experiments we need to do in order to answer some of the questions that are not been answered. Um, and then experimentation. And, and, we, and myself and my team, we conduct uh, experiments, then particularly in the ruminant area, to try to figure out um, the environmental impact and how to reduce the environmental impact as well. Uh, so that has been the, the trajectory of my career is really focusing on 
uh, nutrient utilization, whether it's being in ruminant or non-ruminant systems, and um, environmental impact assessment as well. So you mentioned mathematical modeling. Um, as someone on more of the practical poultry nutrition and industry side, that sounds a little scary to me. <laughs> um, can you get, provide us with an example of what mathematical modeling is uh, practically and what it can teach us and how it applies to animal agriculture? Bonus is if you can give a poultry example. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, mathematical modeling really is trying to represent the biological system in terms of mathematics and uh, what it does is basically we, we try to um, focus on what is important in that system. It's similar to, to a, an artist, you know, uh, depicting something and taking the most important, uh, the salient features of what's been uh, depicted and you know, leaving out the, the stuff that is not really uh, relevant or doesn't contribute as much. So the modeling, that's what it, it does as well. You look at the system, you can't replicate a biological system. So you have to make a representation or a model and to try to understand about that system and, um, and, and then allows you to see if you change something, you know, what would be the impact? Because when you're, um, for people would, would be able to uh, gauge or look at one or two things at, at the same time when things are changing, one or two things at the same time, but with models, you can um, monitor a number of different things changing at the same time as well. And so one of the models that we made uh, is on, on the poultry is to look at the uh, calcium and, and phosphorus uh, intake on egg production. And, and then what we're trying to do is um, when is the best time to provide and how much of calcium and phosphorus because you need calcium and phosphorus at different times of the day when the egg is being produced. And so with the mathematically, we can describe the egg production process and when is the, uh, so the whole process of getting the, the, the yolk form the, and the, the eggshells in particular, because the eggshells are the ones that contain a lot of calcium. So when do you provide that? And if you don't provide that calcium at the right time, the, um, the chicken is going to take the, for the calcium from the bones because that's the, the, the bones are the, the, where you have, you have calcium and phosphorus deposits. And also the proportion of calcium and phosphorus also has to be in a certain way. So with modeling, you know, it allows you to really see the synchronization of the availability of calcium and phosphorus. Um, and so that the, the animal is not being harmed because, you know, if you take too much calcium and phosphorus from the bones, then you have uh, bone breakage and, and other uh, things that are happening. So how do you keep that and how do you provide the nutrients in what amounts, at what time. And so, you know, you can do all of this mathematics in, in, a, in a model. And then once you have refined that model, then you can go out into the real world and you can do an experiment to see what you see in the model is actually what's happening in, in the real life as well. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, then it allows you to, to gain a better understanding of the system. And then you go back and you modify your model and then try it again, and, and hopefully, the, you know, the, after a few trials, you will you will be able to represent the system pretty well. And so we can then do all kind of different uh, experiments uh, in silico. So on on the computer, you can do a lot of experiments, and then the one that are the most uh, interesting ones, then you can take them into the field. Otherwise, if you start doing a lot of stuff in the field, it's much more expensive, and you know, a lot of the data that you generate, it might not be useful to you. But if you do those experiments in silico first, then when you go to in vivo work, 
then um, it's much more uh, you get more information. So that's that's why I like this uh, um, interplay between mathematical modeling and um, uh, experimentation as well, because one informs the other and and helps in gathering the relevant data and the and, and the data that we are we don't have yet. Yes. That makes a lot of sense, particularly considering we have more questions than we have biological systems to test them in. Um, it, it can be very difficult to get research done in vivo uh, in a timely fashion. So certainly narrowing it down with a model makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder, for that calcium and phosphorus model, are you able to then um, expand that type of modeling to include excretion um, of calcium or phosphorus, specifically phosphorus, which really is a, a huge environmental impact? Yes, exactly. So I think the byproduct of that kind of uh, modeling is then you will see uh, how much phosphorus has been utilized and how do you optimize the use of uh, phosphorus in that kind of system. And then you can look at, you know, what are the inputs, what what type of phosphorus has been provided and how it's been digested and how it's been utilized, particularly in ruminants because they don't have the the uh, uh, ability to break down phytate phosphorus um, you know, it, it becomes a, a, a lot more important to make sure that the amount of phosphorus given is not in excess so that, you know, there's a lot of phosphorus that will come out. So then you can look into uh, what happens if you use enzymes. You know, phytase enzymes are now uh, quite commonly used and there are different types of phytases and you can look at the different doses that they give them uh, under different conditions and the phytases are affected by the nutrition and also affected by calcium phosphorus ratio as well. So all of these things can be studied in a model, um, and then 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 you can then you have to do the actual experiment and sort of like ground truthing to make sure that what you see in the model is what you get in in vivo as well. Hmm. So expanding further on this modeling idea, when you're looking at the inputs and the outputs from the bird itself. What other variables do you end up including when you're looking at kind of the whole life cycle impact on the environment? If you're looking at a whole system of animal agriculture for a specific product, say eggs, for example, um, you know, how expansive is that model at that point? I think sort of the, 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 the whole modeling process um, has different stages. You know, you can have a very simple model, sort of input-output kind of model where you know the, you have a, an input and then kind of a black box and then you have an output um, and then you have other type of models where you they're most, more mechanistic modeling so that you can go really deep into the um, uh, into the mechanics of how food has been digested how it's been absorbed and and then how it's been excreted as well so um, yeah it's, so it just depends on the objective so one of the most important things when you start doing modeling is you have to understand what they have to define very clearly. What is your objective? And, and then that objective will then really tell you what kind of model you need to pick in order to answer the questions that you're raising uh, through your objective. Um, and so, you know, so sometimes you just need a simple um, statistical model to answer those. And sometimes you need a much more sophisticated a mechanistic model to be able to answer those questions as well. So I think it's it's important to have the the, uh, the objective. And, and sometimes I see people criticizing the model for you know for not doing things that they want to do. But 
you have to look at the objective. You know, the, what's the objective for the authors? If if you're trying to do outside that objective, then obviously the model is not going to be good, and you have to modify the model to be able to do the new objective. Um, so I think when you evaluate a model, when you look, when you want to use a model, you really have to look at what was the objective of the of, of the model to begin with, and if that objective aligns with what you want to do. If not, then we'll have to adjust that model somehow, and you know maybe add something or subtract something to make it fit to the new objective that you have. Very interesting. I guess you know I think an objective for all of us is obviously to make more sustainable, lower carbon footprint animal products available to consumers. Um, that has been a little bit challenging. Um, you know, on the poultry side, we often hear how efficient poultry is versus other animal products, but that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that it is uh, a resource-intensive production of protein, very high-quality protein. Um, you know, what kind of challenges do you see in pursuing a more environmentally sustainable poultry industry for meat or for eggs in the future? Um, a few that come to mind for me are, are nutrient requirements in that we haven't uh, reestablished the nutrient requirements very recently. And as you mentioned, you kind of have to know what that requirement is before you can start paring down in the diet, um, water consumption, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think one of the things, one of the challenges that we have um, in terms of the environmental impact is that uh, um, the, the nutrients provided are not always being uh, optimally utilized by the, by the animal. And uh, we get uh, excess excretion of those nutrients and that you know that, that, that's not good for the environment it's not good for uh, for, for, the, for the farmer as well um, and w w one of the reasons of that is that we are feeding um, a large number of animals at the same time and there is a lot of animal to animal variation um, and that's you know so sometimes uh, there are a group of animals or a group of, of uh, chicken that uh, that need uh, a certain amount of nutrient, uh, while others not so much. So you you have this kind of normal distribution, where you know a, a bunch of them would be in the middle. Uh, they need a certain amount, while on the on the uh, either ends you have chickens that did not require as much, and the chickens that need uh, a lot more. So you try usually you try to feed to the to the chickens that need the most, and so if you have a lot more of this. Uh, nutrient that will be lost because a lot of the animals in the middle or or lower than the middle, they are getting more than they need, um, and so uh, uh, I know there's a phase feeding that's been practiced now to group animals in the same phase, and so that you can uh, adjust the the nutrients that have been provided that way. But I think there is now opportunity to go beyond that. There is opportunity to actually. Uh, look at the at the individual birds um, and and adjust their their, their intake. And there's some uh, progress has been made in uh, cages where you measure uh, animals automatically. You know? It's just not um, you know it's not just doing it by manually, but automatically. And the animals will go in into a scale. They get measured, and then depending on where they are on their growth uh, the pattern they can be sorted out into different cages so that they can be fed according to their requirement. And that way, you really cut down on the excess amount of nutrients that has been fed because, as I said, you know, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the birds would not need that much uh, feed. You're trying to feed to the, to the less, least, least efficient um, uh, animal if you're doing it all in, in a group. 
and and so moving to that then will really save a lot of feed so this is good for the farmer saving a lot of feed and uh, you know you, you save a lot of the excretion as well so you optimize the amount of nutrients that has been utilized um, you know you can really push the how much of the of the nutrient inputs would be converted into animal product um, and that's really what we want to do is this is in, improving the efficiency which is really good for the environment and and, and good for uh, for the economics as well as long as you know those systems don't cost as much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes there's certainly some cost to converting to a more precise measuring and feeding system um you know, I, I, it kind of reminds me of the adoption of uh reduced antibiotic feeding programs in in the united states regardless of of one's stance on reducing the use of antibiotics in animal feed you can't deny that they're not a niche product anymore. In fact, most birds are fed some form of a reduced antibiotic feed. And that kind of happened very, very slowly to start with. And then suddenly all at once, everybody kind of hopped on board. And that was mainly through consumer and customer driven pressure, especially on the side of you know fast food and retail supermarkets, um, major players in, in the customer side. Um, we end up in this kind of, and please pardon the pun, chicken and egg situation where um, a customer demands this sort of move forward in uh, husbandry and you know our, our thought process about feeding animals, and we kind of are retroactively trying to adapt to it. So there was a lot of adaptation that went on to meet the demand for reduced antibiotic products. I'm afraid that the same situation is probably happening with um, you know a, a premium sort of uh, reduced carbon footprint, more efficient sort of label where it will really take a consumer demand or customer demand to push the industry towards that and then we'll be reactively trying to adapt to it. Do you, do you feel that that's probably the case? And if so, or, or if not, um, what steps do you think the industry could take to get out ahead of this? Yeah, I think uh, the industry has been sort of uh, playing catch up for, for, for a long time, but I think now is the really the time to get ahead of the curve and uh, do all this work and, and uh, inform the inform the customer. So, uh, in some areas, yes, there's there's already a push to try to figure out what is the environmental impact, and people want to know the environmental impact of the food they're they're consuming. Um, and I think the, the the industry need to uh, make sure that uh, people are informed about this uh, this environmental impacts and what steps are being taken to reduce those impacts as well. Um, so, so in the last few years, really, the life cycle assessment has become um, really a, a standard uh, to try to figure out what is the, the overall environmental impact um, on, on a different aspect of the environment, right? So it could be on greenhouse gas emissions, it could be on uh, nutrient uh, pollution, you know, eutrophication, acidification, uh, biodiversity. So there's a number of different things that uh, that uh, come from this. Um, and I think there's, there's now a concerted effort to try to figure out uh, and, and, and conduct this uh, life cycle and, uh, assessment um, and, and provide um, an understanding of uh, how all this product has been made and what is what has been made to make it better as well. And uh, seizing on this, the FAO actually has put together a number of uh, um, professionals from all walks of life, you know, academia, industry, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, governmental organizations and all that, and, and then uh, putting together and 
agreed on a methodology to calculate this uh, environmental impact. And, th and that has resulted in several guidelines that have been published over the last few years now. Uh, so if anybody wants to do an environmental impact assessment for poultry, there is a, a guide for swine, for uh, large ruminants, there's, there's, there's uh, different guidelines uh, for feed that the animals are consuming, there's a guideline. And recently we did a, a feed additive as well. So when you're, when you're using a feed additive, for whatever reason, um, you can also do um, uh, an assessment. Um, so some of the questions that people come up with is, uh, you know, why do you use uh, products that are not natural and, you know, in, uh, in, in, this, in this production? And, um, you know, when you actually do an environmental impact assessment, then you can see what a big difference uh, you, you make. Uh, so a good example is in, in poultry in, in, in Europe. Uh, poultry and, and swine is really um, uh, really depends on uh, soybean. Like right? the soybean is a, a is a is a major ingredient in non-ruminant uh, feeding systems, and and a lot of the soybeans for, for Europe comes from South America, and it has associated um, land use change. You know, there's deforestation going on. To, uh, to 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 meet the, the demand and, and then there's uh, transportation also from South America to Europe, so it has a huge environmental footprint. And the reason that we use soybeans is because of the protein levels. It has very high uh, protein level, and you know, uh, you, you, and for animals you need you need that uh, protein. And so if you use a synthetic amino acids, um, you can actually reduce the soybean uh, requirement by half or, or, or more. And so when you see, when you show this to the to customers, like uh, consumers and saying, look, you know, by using these uh, additives, we are actually reducing the need for this soybean and also, you know, reduce the deforestation, all that uh, quite a bit. And the same thing with, with others, you know, there are other enzymes that have been used like proteases, for example, and that would help in digestion of protein so that Again, you don't have to provide provide as much protein. You can reduce the amount of uh, protein. And, and in non-ruminants, you know the the efficiency of utilization of uh, some of these nutrients is not that high. And and so if you're using enzymes to help in digestion and to help in utilization of those nutrients, then it's really uh, important for the for the environment. Then you are, you have less nutrients that are coming out. You have less nitrogen coming out, less than phosphorus, so less nitrogen means less ammonia coming out, um, being sent into the air, and less greenhouse gases, less nitrous oxide as well. Um, and so I think trying to come up with as low protein diet as possible uh, will help the environment, will help the carbon footprint, uh, but you have, you have to do it through um, adding synthetic amino acids and enzymes and, and all that type of thing. Um, so I think by doing this environmental impact assessment, it really helps to show the uh, consumers that and this is moving forward. This is actually helping the uh, the environment, and you know the birds they don't care what, where it, where it's coming from. You know, they, as long as they get the protein, whether it is from serving or it is from a, a synthetic amino acid, it doesn't matter. So they they get their essential amino acids from the this way. Um, and then, you know, the, the, it would really help the, the, the whole industry to show that um, there's a positive trajectory 
where the environmental impacts are going down and eventually uh, getting to a net zero situation where you know all this uh, the inputs and the outputs if you take the whole system as a, as a whole would uh, be a, a net zero in terms of the, the, the emissions um, yeah so I think that's that's where we want to go uh, at the end of the day and and so we need to think about how do we get there and what kind of technologies that we need in order to help us achieve that goal. It's very interesting, really an interesting and kind of counterintuitive point for consumers in that some programs that uh, consumers naturally gravitate towards, like an organic program, might be um, you know, not allowed to use those synthetic supplements or genetically modified crops that are higher yielding or more efficient. So it seems like there may need to be, like you said, a whole system approach that includes some compromises to come out with the best possible solution for the animal, the environment and you know consumer desires for specific package labels yeah absolutely i mean um yeah, I, actually in, in poultry systems it's, it's funny because um uh, synthetic methionine is used in organic systems and the reason is is that without that the the, the production level is going to be very very low and uh, and so you know we kind of turn a blind eye to to methionine um as 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 it's important but you know other uh, uh, other uh, additives are not being used, but um, yeah, I think it, it's it, it's uh, it's important to show the, what what the impact is if you're using those kind of technologies and without using those uh, technologies. So the the impact on the environment I think is quite huge. It's quite a big reduction you can get um, by using those kind of uh, technologies. So um, uh, having a label, having sh showing that you know this is the associated. Um, emissions or whatever metric that we're using would really help the customer to understand, okay, you know, this is actually helping the environment and has the uh, the lowest carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is enough demand or will be enough demand for a reduced emissions or a climate neutral label to ever get out of the niche phase of marketing? Will it become something ubiquitous like antibiotic free or no antibiotics ever? Or, you know, is it enough to just have it be a niche product? Does it make enough of an impact? I think we are going into the direction where it's going to be mandated. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, the, the start of this uh, for, for ruminant systems in California, for example, we already have um, legislation that mandates a reduction of uh, methane emissions by 40% by 2030. So in eight years, um, we have to achieve this goal. And right now we are kind of halfway. Um, so we need to find a different way to get it down to, to that 40% level. Um, and also a lot of the, the industry have already made a commitment. Uh, if you see any kind of big retailers, you know, whether it be McDonald's or Walmart or, uh, you know, all these uh, big companies, uh, Starbucks, they have a sustainability plan. And they have uh, uh, basically committed to getting their operations to net zero by 2040, 2050, or something like that. And and so um, that that means that you know we are already on that trajectory, and it's not it's not going to be a niche anymore. This is this is going to be you know what standard um, animal source food is going to be. So all animal source foods need to go to that direction, and uh, within 10, 20 years. Um, it will have to be a, a sustainable 
and with uh, with net zero impact. And so what it looked like, I think people are figuring out right now. Um, some of the things like uh, manufacturing of those uh, fidelities, for example, they do they do have an impact, and that's but mostly it's carbon dioxide through the energy. So if you're using renewable energy, then you basically reduce that that impact very you know quite low. If you're using to manufacture enzymes and amino acids, you know through microbial synthesis, and you know uh, most of the thing that you need is really the energy and and, and sugars and stuff. If you are producing, if you are using renewable energy, then the environmental impact is going to be minimal. And so, when you use this into the animal feeding system, then it will uh, reduce the overall uh, um, uh, impact as well. Um, so, as we play with uh, with with feed ingredients, you know, it could be you know uh, insects. Yeah, that's that's a big push now to use insects as a protein source for uh, non ruminant systems. Um, a lot of places already now they use it in um, uh, to feed fish, for example. And I've, I've been in farms in China where they they grow insects, uh, particularly the, the larvae, and and they feed it to fish, and then they use the fish uh, as a fish meal to feed it to swine. And and so uh, right now in 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 Europe in particular, um, you cannot use manure; it has to be feed grade. Inputs to raise uh, insects, but I think the in the future there might there might be a way in which you can um, somehow sterilize the manure. It could be coming from anaerobic digester or something like that, and and then be able to feed to insects and and then and then harvest the protein and, and use it for uh, for animals. So that way, the the, the nitrogen or the protein is is uh, you keep it in the system. Um, and it, it helps in disposing manure as well and reduce the emissions coming from manure. So it really helps in multiple ways to do that. And so through use of all this type of technologies and some that we haven't uh, thought of uh, as of yet, all of that in combination helps us to get into what we want to do in the end, which is to get to net zero. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be that way. I think every time there's meetings in the, the the COP meetings, you know, that's where the push is to try to get to net zero. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's definitely going that way. And it would likely be better to be proactive than reactive this time around. Um, you mentioned, you know, feed additives and some of those suppliers making their, um, you know, additives net zero in, in production. That seems like a great low hanging fruit and an action item that you know, poultry producers can start implementing right now is to go to their suppliers and ask about those programs. And if their suppliers don't have those programs, ask why not? Um, just to start getting the ball rolling on that. It seems like something that is a win-win for both companies. Um, unfortunately, I do kind of see a, a pervasive attitude towards, you know, these problems that seem like far off future problems, but are definitely next decade problems at the latest. <laughs> Um, that, you know, people feel like they can't improve sustainability or, um, you know, reduce their carbon footprint without either spending a lot of extra money or having a loss in production efficiency. So hearing about those kind of win-win situations is very valuable. I don't know if you can think of any um, examples from your research or interacting with farmers about a win-win situation doesn't have to be poultry where it was not only beneficial for the carbon footprint of the operation, but also for the animals or for the production itself. 
Yeah, so the, one, one of the things that we're working on uh, at the moment in, in the ruminant system is to try to reduce uh, uh, enteric methane emissions, which is uh, quite a big part of the, the carbon footprint for uh, uh, ruminant system, for whether it be milk or, or, or meat. So um, one of the feed additives that we're working with uh, uh, in uh, seaweed, it, will, it helps not only that it reduce methane emissions quite substantially, in some cases, up to 80%, and there's, there's also a report going up to 98%. So it's quite a, a big reduction in, in terms of emissions. But in, in a couple of studies that, uh, that we've seen in, in beef cattle, it's actually uh, improved the, the, the feed conversion ratio. So the animals were actually, um, they were uh, consuming less feed, but maintaining the weight. Uh, so the, the feed conversion ratio is, is beneficial to, to the farmers. Uh, so that's the kind of a win-win situation where the economics really works in favor of the farmers, where you don't need to feed as much um, inputs in the, to the animals and then you get the same uh, weight as well. And, and we looked at sort of differences in terms of the carcass quality, which was the same. The taste was also the same. So you're not losing anything in terms of um, the, the the quality of the product. Uh, and, and so... That's that's something that would be a really a win-win kind of situation where you improve the productivity as well as you reduce environmental impact. Um, I'm sure the, the, those those I mean the, 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 the uh, example of amino acids is the same thing that with the synthetic amino acids, uh, it's, it improves productivity quite quite a bit, and and then at the same time reduces uh, environmental impact and other enzymes. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, so some, NSPs where they have uh, polysaccharides that are difficult to, to degrade. If you use enzymes, it helps degrade those, which means you, you, you have, the, the animal has more nutrients available to, to it. So there's more nutrient utilization and then less excretion. So it's good for the environment, but also it, it improves productivity um, in, in the system as well. So I think a lot of the times, you know, the, the, those solutions can be both economically viable as well as uh, it, it reduces the, the environmental impact as well. I mean, so far we've been mostly focused on improving the productivity, but I think we have to address the, the environmental impact as well. And the, by using those enzymes, there is an environmental impact, but we're not really talking about those, right? So there's, there's the, this need now to show that, you know, we're not just using to improve the productivity, but also uh, indirectly, you're you're uh, improving the sustainability. You're improving um, the uh, the, uh, the impact. The environmental impact would be less when when you're using those things as well. So instead of just focusing on the productivity aspects of things, I think we need to look at uh, what it does to the the environment, how it is contributing to the reduction of environmental impact as well. Um, so I think we shouldn't forget that, and I think that that needs to be part of the discussion as well. Yes, that is a great perspective to have. I, I will admit that I'm guilty of not necessarily thinking about feed conversion in terms of environmental sustainability, but really at its heart, improved feed conversion is improved environmental sustainability. So that's a great way to think about it. I'm going to have to apologize because I think you're asked this question pretty frequently. I'm guessing a lot of people probably ask you, since this is your field of study, why should we not just simply stop raising animals for food altogether? What is your response to that? Well, I think the, the, the main response is that um, the uh, animal source foods are uh, very difficult to, to replicate in, in terms of the nutrition that they're given. I mean, if you are going to 
look at the environmental impact, impact just looking at the, the calories that you get from, uh, from, from animals, then obviously it's going to come really, really worse. So for environmental impact, if you just look at the calories, the best thing is sugar. Now, sugar has the lowest environmental impact for calories. If you look at 400 calories or something, then, yeah, but obviously you're not going to go and ask people to just eat sugar. So um, I think we have to think about it's the, the nutrition, the whole, the whole package. Um, and, and the same thing with protein. It's not just about the protein. I think it's, uh, animal source foods contain a lot of micronutrients. And so when we trying to assess the environmental impacts of all of these different types of foods, you know, I see a lot of work that's been done and, you know, they use the, the weight of the, uh, of the product or calories or protein, but those are not really the, the measures that you need. I mean, the, the, you can definitely get a different source of calorie, you know, you can sugar, you get different sorts of protein, you can do lentils or something, but it's the combination of all the things, the, the micronutrients, the, the ions and the zinc and manganese and you know, a lot of those micronutrients that are needed for a, a proper development, particularly for children, um, it's, it's extremely important. Um, and so you need to really look into the, the nutrient density. And so in 100 grams of meat, how much nutrient are you going to get compared to 100 grams of vegetable? I think that you can see, it's hard to, to, to see what, you know, why we need this uh, animal source food. And, and a lot of times, in, 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 particularly in, in low-income countries, uh, you see uh, undernutrition, stunting, and, and things like that because they're not getting enough of the micronutrients. It's not about calorie. They get a lot of calorie. They have a lot of starchy foods. They have a lot of grains available to them. But they're, you know, they they are uh, malnourished, and they there's uh, there's there's nutrition insecurity, right? It's not just about food; it's just nutrition. And so you need to get the right nutrition. And you know, things like eggs, you know, they have the perfect pro protein profile. You 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 basically get all the amino acids that you need from from eggs, uh, and and also all the uh, the micronutrients that, uh, that that people need as well. So. Just having one egg a day, for example, will make a huge difference to a child uh, growing up. You know, especially the first thousand days is really critical for for children's development, uh, for brain development, and all that. To have those kind of uh, micronutrients that are some of them are only available in uh, from uh, animal source food, and others are abundant, much more, much more abundant. You know, you can have those uh, those um, nutrients from plant sources, but First, they are in a much, much lower uh, quantity. And second, they are also not, uh, not being able to absorb it as readily as in, as in animal source food. So uh, it's not just about the amount, but also uh, how much of it can you absorb it. And uh, just like the phytate we're talking about for phosphorus, you know, you give to nanomimulants with the phytate, they're not going to use it all that much. Although there is phosphorus, there's a lot of phosphorus in it, they can use it. So there's the same thing as well. Although there is a lot of micronutrients in plant food as well, but if you don't absorb it, if you can't use it, there's no point. Um, so that's why I think we need to have the the uh, uh, livestock uh, or animal source foods um, as as part of the the uh, a healthy diet. Um, and there's a lot of studies that have been shown. Um, some here at UC Davis, um, and one particular study in Cameroon, for example, they looked at what is the was what's the element that's missing the most in their diet to have a this they call it the dash diet that's supposed to be sort of the ideal sort of diet to have a a, a normal functioning um, sort of 
uh, type of nutrition. And you know, they, they looked at it. The, the, the biggest uh, um, issue was that there is huge undernourishment from uh, milk, from beef, uh, from eggs. You know, these are the things that they are not getting as much of. Uh, now we, we can talk about in high-income countries where there is an overconsumption. So that's not good. You know, overconsumption of animal source food is not. Uh, I don't think it's it's healthy, and I think this is something that we need to talk about as well. So uh, obviously people have to consume according to their requirements. Um, uh, so as long as you have you know, consume it according to your requirement, then I think it is a necessary part of the the human diet. Uh, yeah, I'm. I, uh, I, have, I have I have little kids, and I always make sure that they have the, the animal source food uh, because I believe it's uh, extremely important to to have that. I wholeheartedly agree. It's very hard to beat an egg for amino acid profile and bioavailability of those amino acids. So, um, yeah, as much as I believe that everyone should have the freedom to eat what they choose to eat, you know, it really is a privilege of a high socioeconomic status society to be able to have a balanced plant-based diet. And I do think we tend to overlook the fact that that's not necessarily a privilege that the rest of the world has. Um, there still needs to be a place for highly efficient animal products. Yeah. And, and I think most of people live in, in low-income countries. The majority of the population in the world, they live in, in low-income countries. And that's why you see um, the demand going higher because those countries are now getting, so the economy is getting better. So they have more disposable income. And the first thing they do when they have disposable income is, is buy animal source food. Um, so it's not just, I think it's not just for the taste, but also for the, for, for the nutrition uh, quality as well. I think it's, it's quite an important thing. And the other thing that, you know, almost never talked about is um, the cultural value that the, the animals themselves have as well. Um, you know, coming from society where uh, livestock is really important, um, it's not just used as a source of food, but it's, just, it's also used uh, for uh, risk ab abatement. You know, if your crops fail, now you have livestock to try to make do and you know, sell some of the livestock and, and, and buy uh, grains or something like that. Or you know, if somebody from your family is sick, then you, you sell well, some of your livestock and, and, and buy medicine and all that. So this, this happens quite often in a, in a lot of countries, and this is how sort of the economy works. Um, so using, just thinking livestock as a, just simply as a source of food uh, again, it's, it's a, a thing in high-income countries. Uh, we don't use livestock for more than that. And, um, but uh, yeah, a, lo a lot of places you know, used for transportation um, you know, without livestock, it's going to be very hard for, for a lot of people to be able to transport and, and to farm. You know? um, again, I came from a society where uh, oxen is the, is the tractor. You know, the, that, that's how you do that. If you, you know, people who don't have that, they are very, very poor you know, because then they have to borrow, they have to pay somebody to, to, to help them. And, you know, whatever they make, they have to share it with uh, the person who, who owns the uh, couple of oxen. So, um, but this kind of conversation doesn't come to the fore because it's mostly uh, happening in low-income countries. We don't, we don't see it. And so we just talk about livestock as being um, the source of emission and, uh, and, and we just only think about the, the food and, and trying to sort of change that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, l l like you, you know, I'm, more, I'm uh, very open for people to choose whatever they want to eat uh, as long as they are fully inf informed 
the ramifications of what you're eating, I think that's fine. Yes. Yes. I think you bring up a very good point that it is a huge ethical oversight to not consider people with other ways of life or, you know, lower socioeconomic status where it would drastically impact their life to remove animal products. So that's a very good point to keep in mind through all these discussions. Well, looking at the time, we're getting close to wrapping up. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say to summarize or take home messages before we move into our three questions that we ask every guest on our podcast? Uh, I think what I would say is, uh, you know, we, we, we have a, a lot of work to do to make sure that uh, animal source foods are produced in a way that is uh, sustainable, uh, that's ethical, and uh, that has the, uh, as minimum impact in the environment as, as possible. So I think um, most people in, in the animal industry, they, they want to see this. They, they want to make sure that uh, customers are, are informed and, and uh, inefficiencies are being removed. And, and we are going towards the, the goal of uh, having a, a fully sustainable uh, animal systems. It's a, it's a good goal to have. And, you know, the more we spend time doing these just life cycle assessments to get started and thinking about areas within our operations that we can improve easily and just keep working towards that common goal, it, it seems like a hopeful future. It's time for our famous three. For the three questions that we ask every guest, first, I'd like to ask you, um, what is your favorite book or resource related to the environmental impact of animal agriculture? Is there something you can recommend maybe to folks who are less familiar with uh, that area but want to learn more? Uh, yeah, so uh, mostly actually a lot of these things have been sort of described in uh, the, uh, the IPCC assessment reports. So IPCC comes up with assessment reports every few years. Uh, they, they came up not too long ago um, as well. So I think those are really informative and um, uh, comprehensive look at um, um, what, what, is, what, what is the environmental impact, uh, you know, what, what, why are we worried about the, the environmental impacts and how we can reduce those environmental impacts as well. So uh, every few years when those books are published, I think they are really, they are really informative. And the latest one includes some ideas on uh, mitigation as well. So I would I would think that you know the the IPCC assessment reports are really a, a good source of that. Excellent, that's a great recommendation. Um, as far as a favorite book or resource outside of your field, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, outside, well, I, I was going to mention the the, so the the great plant-based con uh, by by Jane Buxton. I think that that's a, a book that um, I'm I'm enjoying. Currently, to, because uh, you know, really addresses a lot of the misinformation um, that's that's uh, that's happening. So that sounds right up my alley. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah, that, that that's something that I'm uh, I'm enjoying at the moment. Excellent. And then lastly, I'd like you to take a moment and think of someone in your life who you would consider to be successful. However, you choose to define success personally. And if you could tell us what qualities or characteristics do you think set them up for success in research, work, life in general, anything? Well, I, I guess uh, uh, my uh, f former um, mentor, I think uh, uh, James France, I think he really had a, a, good, uh, a good balance and uh, very successful 
uh, as, as a researcher and uh, as, as a family person as well. So, um, you know, I really learned quite a lot uh, from him and, you know, the, his approach and his uh, style of uh, mentoring people. Uh, I think he's, uh, he's helped and mentored a lot of people, in, including myself, and helped you know, those people to get to what they, 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 uh, they want to go into. Um, and, you know, he really uh, takes the time and, and just um, talk with, with, with his students and postdocs as just, you know, um, as, as equal. And, and you know, uh, I, I, I used to have, when I was a postdoc with him, he used to have lunch almost every day. And, 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 you know, it's not just about work uh, as well. You know, we, we maybe touch base a little bit of work and then we talk about soccer. You know, we both like uh, soccer. So, you know, whatever games happen over the weekend, uh, talk about that or talk about whatever sort of the, 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 that comes up. I think uh, it was really good. And, and yeah, he, was, he is a, a good uh, family person as well and making sure that the family are taken care of and, you know, there's a good work-life balance uh, in that as well. So I think he's, uh, he has contributed hugely to the scientific literature. He's done a lot of work in, in modeling. Um, the, I think some of the, uh, the earliest work that was done, I think one of the first people who really did some mathematical modeling in, in, uh, in agriculture. Uh, so he really contributed quite a bit in, until his uh, retirement a few years ago. So I think that's somebody that they tried to emulate and um, uh, use as uh, somebody to look up to. Absolutely. Those work-life balance issues are a little bit tricky, but once you get the hang of them, it makes all the difference. And having those kind of personal connections at work, just to you know, not necessarily be talking about work all the time, makes it much more enjoyable and you end up working better together as a team. Really excellent point. Yeah, I think you just connect at the, at the human level, you know, so uh, I, I really appreciated that. Well, Dr. Kabrab, thank you so much for coming on the Poultry Podcast Show. We really appreciate your time today. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing everything that you've had to say. Um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. This, this has been fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.